I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're On Pump. With a podcast that takes you inside the beating heart of modern medicine and explores the fascinating world of perfusion, the science that keeps the blood flowing during life-saving surgeries. So today, Mel and I are sitting down with Dave Fitzgerald. We're going to talk about the development and implications of pints, perfusion, intraoperative, non-technical skills. Welcome, Dave. We are incredibly happy that you're joining us today. Please tell us a little about yourself. First of all, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. I've been looking forward to this and you guys do such great work that uh, this is an exciting opportunity and congratulations on getting this off the ground. So I work primarily at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I'm the division director for the cardiovascular perfusion program here. The program here is a a master's degree program, two-year program in which we graduate cardiovascular perfusion students and introduce them into the community. And so I've been here just going on eight years now, and it's really been a great experience for me working with students closely and being able to work a little further upstream in their formative years of perfusion education. And then I still also work clinically in the operating room to maintain my certification. Yeah. Dave's very modest. Before he was at MUSC, he was actually the director at Inova Health in Virginia. He's the associate editor of the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology. He chairs the International Conference Planning Committee for AMSECT. He is the current president-elect of the American Academy of Cardiovascular Perfusion, and he was the president of AMSECT in 2012. He has over 40 publications in various medical journals, and he's helped develop a lot of the resources that we use today to advance the profession. We're really excited to have you on here And I got to say, it's nice to see the table swapped here. So instead of sitting in your classes like I did a couple of years ago to get to interview you now is pretty awesome. So now I'm under the spotlight and you're asking me all the questions, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's just how it works. Listen, thank you again. And I appreciate the kind words. And like many of us, I've been very fortunate that I've had great colleagues and great mentors over the course of my career and just, just want to follow in their footsteps and not let them down. And this has been a passion of mine, this field for a long time, and I'm just happy to give back when I can. So thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you so much, Dave. We're so excited. But all right, all right. Are we ready to go on pump with pints yet? <laughs> all jokes aside, Dave, there are so many components to pints, and it was a massive undertaking. Pints serve as a rubric, a mini course online to teach people how to become expert assessors, and it was published in the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery in July of 2021. Congratulations on these recent accolades in such a notable scientific journal, by the way. So I beg to ask, what inspired you to tackle this project, and what was that experience like? Yeah, thank you. So some of the data that we know about adverse events and medical errors that take place in healthcare institutions, we're well familiar with the data. It's been publicly available since the turn of the century, where the Institute of Medicine estimated that 100 to 200,000 patients every year undergo some type of medical error while they're under our care. And a number of safety initiatives and a number of governmental policy changes were made to help improve the quality of care for patients, some of which has worked, but to a large extent, the data really hasn't changed significantly. When we look at medical errors, about two-thirds of those medical areas we attribute to communication breakdowns. So either lapses in communication or ineffective communication, some of the non-technical soft skills. So if we know that a majority of those soft skills lead to medical errors, 
then there are ways in which we could evaluate our own practice, evaluate our own behaviors in the context of the operating room and try to determine what we can do. It's not a matter of purchasing more technology. It's not a matter of changing what we do from a technical aspect. It's the non-technical aspects we haven't focused on. And I was fortunate enough to be in a position at the time where um, a core group of individuals came together. There were a few perfusionists, myself, Bill Riley, Danny Fitzgerald, who I affectionately referred to as my brother from another mother, Kenny Shan, and, and Donnie Lakoski, who is an epidemiologist, were able to partner with a organizational psychologist and human factors psychologist, Dr. Stephen Yule and Dr. Roger Diaz. And they have plenty of experience working with other high-risk professions in terms of accident prevention, things like offshore drilling and aviation and even aerospace. And for some reason, they took an interest to perfusion, which was fantastic because we're such a small profession that we don't usually hit the radar in terms of these individuals and their contributions. And we came together, I think it was probably 20... 18 or 2019. And we had a discussion about what we can do to develop a taxonomy for perfusion. And that work, fortunately for us, bared some fruit and we were able to validate a taxonomy, which is the article that you had cited, which was published. What a great meeting of the minds. So I have to ask, what exactly are PINES and why are they important for perfusionists? The acronym for PINES is, is Perfusion Intraoperative Non-Technical Skills. And what that means in a nutshell is that the, the non-technical skills are the things that are both the cognitive and the behavioral aspects of how we do our job every day. So think about things like how we make decisions in the context of being a member of a pretty dynamic and complex cardiac surgical team. What type of situational awareness does a person have with regard to where we are at the plate in the time of the surgery and what steps should we be anticipating or what could potentially be unanticipated steps? Leadership, the ability to recognize when things have gone wrong, if You've always heard that saying sometimes in your uh, briefings or timeout, if you see something, say something. And then formal communication. Communication could be things like closed loop communication. It could be the sterile cockpit that during the critical moments of the case where we're going on and coming off, some of those extraneous conversations should come to a halt. And then teamwork, that we're just one member of a pretty busy and complex team of individuals that work in a high-risk industry. And so what's the relationship between the perfusionist and the surgeon and anesthesiologist and nursing team? And so the pints is really the, the tool, that the taxonomy that we could assess and observe these behaviors that we see that take place with regard to perfusion, but of course, in the larger framework of, of how we communicate amongst our peers. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that we're not the only healthcare professionals or industry that have come up with this type of idea. So I know there's a no text two and knots. So one is for surgical techs and the other one I think is for surgeons. And I also thought it was really fascinating that the same four categories that you guys chose to use for 
pints was also utilized for surgeons and surgical tech. So do you think some of these skills are universal to the space that we work in? Or do you think that there are some characteristics that are more specific towards perfusion that pints hits on that they don't? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's very similar because we totally hijacked their taxonomies and made it our own and customized it. This type of framework is alive and well and exists, as I said, in other high-risk industries. They assess the non-technical aspects of their job and that in high-reliability organizations, they're preoccupied with safety. They're always finding ways of improving their process, right? And so they, with regard to the operating room, there is a taxonomy for scrub techs, as you said, there's one for anesthesia, there's one for surgery. And it didn't make any sense that if these are that important to those other professions, that perfusion doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. So we felt that number one, it was necessary for us to have one. But number two, that a lot of the same underlying theoretical underpinnings are really very consistent across them. That when any profession working in a complex team, that there needs to be effective communication, there needs to be leadership and situational awareness. And so what we did was we took those four domains but each of those have fears that are under them. And so while the domain names are the same, we tried to be more specific to what perfusionists do, adhering to a checklist. We know that checklists are one of the most important tools that a perfusionist has. Effective communication, closing the loop, making sure that you repeat things in a read-verify manner. The ability to anticipate some of those steps during surgery. So during the briefing period, if the patient's have it's really low to start the case. They're anemic that perhaps we should be thinking about next steps or whether or not they need to be transfused, whether or not we should make sure that we get a thorough wrap or have an ultrafiltrate device ready. So a lot of those things we found that we could we could incorporate into the into the perfusionist role. But you're right, some of those themes are very consistent across all the professions. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think handoffs or transition of care, that was an additional one to the pints. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, Tiff. And the transition of care is a really important one because we know that one of the more frequent instances where lapses in communication do occur is during the transition of care. So if, if someone's coming in to say, to give you lunch, or someone's coming in to, or you're relieving someone who's been up all night on an emergency aortic procedure, and they're getting a chance to go home now, do what you need to know in order to assume care seamlessly amongst two, amongst two healthcare professionals. And transition of care tools like the one that AMSECT has, the I pass the clamp off, some of those really should be standardized across institutions with how they, they're an effective and safe transition of care. So yeah, it's a great point. It is in our taxonomy. I agree completely. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit about how you trained people to utilize this rubric? Because if we have this rubric, it's great. Can I just take it off the internet, go to my center and be like, let's try this out. And it was just reading the Checklist Manifesto book. And it was a really great chapter ending when he talked about a tool Gawande talked about how he brought it to his center and they were about to roll this out internationally. And he goes, by the end of the day, we didn't even want to keep using it. Like we stopped using it within three hours because it wasn't working. So how do you train people to utilize this rubric to the most effective manner? 
Yeah. So that's where we are right now. We validated this taxonomy, this tool at AMSEC 2020. And Roger Diaz was the principal investigator for the research study. And what we did at the conference that year was we we showed or aired the videos, segments of the videos that were captured several years prior, the AMSEC safety videos and scripted simulations. And we had members in the audience after receiving a primer education session on pints assess the skills. And we were able to validate it that the tool does... Um, does have some validity and reliability in, in being able to correctly assess skills. And then COVID happened, right? And now the world shuts down and we're having our meetings virtually. And so that somewhat needs some of our momentum. But for the last year and a half, several of us have been presenting on Pints at professional conferences. Not everyone was aware of what Pints are. So at AMSEC conferences, at local regional meetings and state society meetings, we really started to try to help get the word out on what they are and why they're important. Now, what we're trying to do is take a multi-pronged approach on how we can help others introduce them at their respective institutions. And it's not just the hospitals, it's also the perfusion education programs. So starting at the grassroots level with, okay, how can we start introducing this into a perfusion education curriculum? So there are a few schools, Ashara Bronson at Iowa's incorporating them at her institution. And so now we're trying to show the value of having it at the schools. When it comes to our profession, one of the things that we're actually doing at this year's AMSEC conference is we're having a simulation session on perfusion non-technical skills. And we'll have a, an educational primer for those who participate and then go through several simulation scenarios where we actually get a chance to buy some of those behaviors and be able to reflect on what could what had gone on, what can be improved using the Pints tool. And our goal at the end of that conference is to take the data that we collect during that simulation session, de-identify it, but then share it during the conference, the plenary session of the conference to show, hey, this can be done. This can be done at your center and it doesn't, you don't need to purchase expensive technology to do it. You don't need to have a high fidelity simulator. You can do this in a low fidelity environment and start to raise the question about how these tools can be implemented in your program. Maybe part of it is creating protocols around the way in which communication is, is engaged, or perhaps identify things that we can do to improve the briefing or debriefing period when it comes to decision-making. So there are definitely things that we can do to help the community, right? We're in the process of making that achievable for folks. Awesome. So I, I just want to note in your publication, there was a lot of mention of inter-rater reliability. And so how would you go about standardizing the process of rating this performance? Yeah. So if you read the publication, for those that haven't yet, we did find some differences in how individuals rated those behaviors. 
based mm-hmm. on how much experience that they have. So we found that those that were have been in a profession for a number of years, I think it was 20 years or more, were more inclined to not rate those skills as critical than those that were one to five years into our profession. So we did see some variability with respect to how they assess those behaviors using the tool. I think as we go along and we collect more data, we'll start to identify who are the ones that rate them differently than others and perhaps be able to analyze some of the demographics that are involved. Is it more senior versus junior perfusionists? Or do pediatric perfusionists have a better eye for this than adults? Or is it a function of how big of a center that you work at if you're a large volume academic university center or small community hospital? And while the overall reliability was good, we did find some differences, which would what we expect. But the more people that we measure, the better understanding we're going to have. And in some instances, maybe it is a matter of a little bit more education with non-technical skills or being able to produce more scripted simulation videos where they're more they're able to look at those more discrete behaviors in a different type of context. And can you walk us through a real life scenario where you have used pints in your work as a perfusionist? Yeah, I think sometimes lapses in communications tend to be the Achilles heel for us in the operating room. And case in point, I think all of us have experienced more recently some of the impacts of the global supply chain, right? So we have of products, cannulas, pump packs, solutions, you name it. And one of the things we're struggling with right now at my center, like every other center, is we run out of product and how do we effectively communicate that? It may not be a big deal to some that the manufacturer of our arterial aortic cannula is changing, right? But for the surgeons, that can be everything because they're so very creatures of habit and very deliberate with how they cannulate and slight differences in profile and design of the cannula could be a negative impact onto the patient. Communication's really been really critical for us. More recently, there's a nationwide back shortage on CPD. So when we use Buckberg cardioplegia, we have some surgeons that have been using Buckberg for 30 years. Now, all of a sudden, there's no CPD, and they're now having to use Del Nido solution. And sometimes they may or may not be told that, that it's changing prior to their case. And we found opportunities to help assess when it comes to decision-making, communication, things that we can do at our institution to make it safer. Brilliant. So you talked a lot about assessing at the conference. You talked about how you're going to have this simulation you're going to go in, you're going to run a scenario, and then you're going to have this discussion, what could have been better, what was done well. So when you approach that what could have been de- better situation, how does one go about developing and improving their pints? I know that you can pinpoint maybe a certain characteristic or a certain category that was lower rated than another, but what kind of exercises do you foresee people needing to implement to get better at this? Yeah, that's a great question, Mel. And I didn't have a hard and fast answer for this. What I would say is that it's not that perfusionists don't want to do the best job possible. 
And it's not that what they're doing is dangerous or a big deviation from what they should be doing, but sometimes we can learn collectively from one another. And so some of these experiences might be to say, okay, here we gave protamine and everything looked fine for a couple minutes. And all of a sudden now the patient crashes and you have to reinitiate cardiopulmonary bypass right away. What does that communication look like at your center? While the anesthesiologist is trying to resuscitate the patient with epi and volume and the surgeon's now rushing to get the cannula in, how is that communication captured with giving heparin to be able to safely get back on bypass? And what role does each play in a critical crisis event like that? And sometimes we can rely on things like standards and guidelines. You know, there's still a lot of work to be done and you guys can appreciate it because we've all been, we've all been participants in the latest revision of the standards and guidelines. But I feel like to some extent, we've come a long way with creating standards and guidelines for perfusion practice, both adults and peds. But we really haven't found a way to create standards and guidelines for non-technical skills. And so I hope that from this tool, we can develop some of those guidelines that can be mutually agreed upon with our community. We can identify opportunities where if we see somebody on our team struggling a little bit, that somebody is comfortable enough to raise their hand and to say, okay, you know, let's stop for a second here. I can see Dave's really trying to get caught up from crashing on bypass or see Dr. Jones, the anesthesiologist has his hands full with trying to put blood in through the rapid infuser. Let me go over and help him to see if I need a hand. So it's those types of soft skills that I think the more that we talk about them, the more we could try to find consensus across our industry. I think that's really fascinating what you're saying, especially in those emergent situations, being being aware of what's going on in the room, attention to detail and where you can step in and make a difference, even if it's not your normal role. And I think it's so funny to me because if you change centers, I talk about what kind of center you work at. Well, what about what about the people that work as per diem or travel perfusionists that are visiting four or five centers in a month? and pumping with different teams. And each team has a slightly different understanding of what's underneath their role, what's their responsibility, what's somebody else's responsibility. And if you get comfortable with your team, those things don't get communicated. And I saw that a lot when I started my new job. It was the biggest blow I can say was stepping into the room and saying, okay, I've been doing this for a couple of years. I'm confident that I can work through whatever happens. And if I don't, then I have support. And then finding out that these people had these different understandings of their responsibilities. And then suddenly I'm sitting there and I'm like, whoa, I don't know where I fit. I don't know. Should I say something? Should I not? What's expected? So it's interesting how that rubric can play a role with that. Uh, it's a great point you raised. I had a surgeon many years ago that stopped what he was doing and says, the perfect case to me was when I, I, I can come into the operating room and not say anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I understand that I understand the point he was trying to make that you have this team familiarity where everyone is plugged in, everyone knows the next step, and there's really no need to communicate. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, that sounds awful. If we're not communicating, even though I know or I may know what your next steps are, what are the chances there could be a slight deviation that you do something slightly different than what I'm expecting? And if we don't communicate and you don't know what I'm doing, what are the chances that we could have a misstep here? And that team familiarity is really important. And I think you make a great point because 
we've had across our country, we've had really a lot of vacancy and turnover, really as much with perfusion as in nursing. Travelers through our operating rooms all the time, and they're great. And these travelers are, are traveled and, and very experienced and educated, but they're educated about surgery, not necessarily the culture with which we work in. And so because of that, when you lose some of that team familiarity, you do become a little bit more uncomfortable with those around you and yourself. And yeah, so I think you make a great point about that and how assessing non-technical skills, we need to first be able to measure it before we can improve it. And if we know now that we can measure it, now the next step is, all right, how can we use this measuring tool to help improve it at our center? I'm painting this overall picture in my mind that pints are like the street smarts of perfusion, having the situational awareness and the proper communication skills. And it's totally resonating with me. Also, I think you read my mind about the next question, where you see pints playing a role in the future of perfusion practice. I know that you mentioned maybe having almost like a standards and guidelines for pints and training in pints. What else would you add to how pints will contribute to the future? Where I'm focusing a good deal of my time now is formally incorporating it into a perfusion education program. And we were all perfusion students one day doing our very first case. When I did my first case, I didn't take my eyes off the reservoir, right? I might've had 1500 in the reservoir, but I didn't want to take my eyes off because at any second it can drain. And I don't want to be the one that pumps air in his very first case, right? And students, when they start working in an operating room, really don't have any situational awareness. They are just fixated on the pump and they just want to do a really good job managing the heart-lung machine. So it's the conscious competence, right? It's to say, I can do a good job, but I really need to concentrate to do it. But as they have more cases under them, when they're going through their clinical experience, the room starts to open up a little to them. And now they're not just focused on the reservoir, they're focused on what's happening them around the room. And so when a surgeon asks for a certain suture or a certain instrument, they the students begin by the time that they're ready to graduate, they can start to anticipate these steps and be ready. And for example, if a student is just come off bypass or they're warming, but the surgeon and anesthesiologist have been looking at the echo for the last several minutes after the mitral valve repair, what are the chances that they're going to have to reclamp and try to repair it again? And having your cardioplegia set up to your high K and ready again, or have to be able to cool down if they need to. And so they can start to develop more of a situational awareness. So from an, an academic standpoint, we're trying to incorporate it into the school. We've made it a part of their clinical rotation evaluation. So when we send students out to our clinical affiliates, one of the sections of their evaluation is assessing their non-technical skills. And hopefully when we collect data, this is the second year now that we've had it, we're hoping that we see improvements over the four rotations that we have. These are skills that they're developing along the way. And then from a professional standpoint, this conference with AMSEC is going to go a long way into actually doing simulation at the conference. Again, we've gotten away from that a little bit, especially with COVID of hosting simulation at conferences. And we're looking to take a slightly different spin using non-technical skill assessment and then sharing some of that data at the conference 
and then hopefully being able to create more online tools that are accessible to people. So we have the AMSEC safety videos, but we'd like to create more videos, not just with an operating room, but even things like ECMO or things like transition of care or some of the other skills and responsibilities that we have that are even outside of bypass. We find ourselves working in different surgical environments all the time now in critical care units. And what can we do to provide more tools for people to assess those behaviors? I think you brought up such an interesting point about putting it into the evaluations for students out on clinical rotations and being on the other side of it now as a preceptor at an institution that takes students from multiple different schools. It's really interesting to see how the evaluations can be so different from one another. You have the bulk of it that's the same because you're still assessing a student's performance on cardiopulmonary bypass in an operating room, but a lot of the ways that it's worded or the things that they're trying to hit on that they're finding important, I'm not sure if I'm going to put you in a corner here at this question, but what role do you think the ACPE is going to play in trying to standardize that in the future? And would Pints play a role in that? Yeah, there's no corner that will hold me. Uh, <laughs> all kidding aside, I think there is room for it to be in the formal curriculum for perfusion education. I think we need to develop it and to work on it a little, refine it a little further. But I do think at some point, curriculum surrounding non-technical skills behaviors should be a part of a perfusion curriculum. And I think it will at some point. It's just a matter of getting it out there, making sure everyone's aware of it, being able to share the tool, how the tool works, what are the principles behind it, and then hopefully reaching the ACPE and as program directors to suggest that this should be part of the curriculum. Dave, beyond student organizations, how do you think healthcare organizations can support the development and utilization of pints? Yeah, great question. This is a tricky one because even the surgeon ones that have been available and have been available for several years and not system, I believe has been available since 2008 or 2010. It's been out for a while. And to be honest, I don't know if there are centers that practice any of those. I know there's great research going on right now at, at the University of Michigan hospitals, Donnie Lakoski and Roger Diaz and a few others have been engaged in researching and doing video captures of procedures. There's been some work that has been done, and I believe gastric surgery with being able to assess non-technical skills of surgeons and see if there's an association between their skills and the non-technical skills in the OR and their patient outcomes. And so I think the data and the science is emerging as we go, but I think it's been fairly slow to embrace because again, here's the problem that when you look at cardiac surgery overall, right, there are lots of things that we can measure. And so if you look at a model of cardiac surgical quality, we can measure all the things that the patient brings into the operating room. So we can measure their demographics or their comorbidities or their laboratory values. We know what our organizational factors are, like our surgical case volume or our complication rates. And then postoperatively, we can measure things like if they've had a stroke or sternal wound infection, or renal failure, or AKI. But in the operating room, we can measure the technical things pretty good. 
bypass time, cross clamp time, some of the bypass related factors, how many blood products they received. But what we don't measure in the operating room are the non-technical practices. And therein lies our window of opportunity. Our goal as we continue to roll this out is to find ways where that can be measured easily in a cardiac surgical theater. And we're not there yet. Again, this is fairly early work, relatively speaking, but we do believe at some point that there'll be measurable tools that can be incorporated into an everyday operating room. Dave, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence. It seems to be a hot topic uh, at this moment. And artificial intelligence in terms of machine learning and helping perfusionists improve their skills by identifying ways to fix the delivery of oxygen. It could offer you advice on what to do next in that situation. But with pints, these are raw human skills that you can't have a computer necessarily learn at this point. So I feel like this is definitely the future. And I think that this is really important for people to be learning in the wake of artificial intelligence, because those innate human skills are what we need in our practice. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a pretty exciting field of technology. I do believe and agree with you that some of those non-technical aspects might be difficult for AI to be able to make significant improvements. These are opportunities, I think, as a profession that we can engage with people who are experts in that area of industry. And I think AI has a place in cardiac surgery. I think it has a place in perfusion. And I can't keep up with the innovation and what we've seen in AI. And I know that one of the Microsoft ones was able to pass the bar exam. These things are performing in many instances above what a human would and to what extent it would make cardiac surgery safer and then make our lives easier. That will be the telltale test, I think. Yeah. Definitely. And maybe leave more room to focus on non-technical skills, soft skills. I hope so. As I said, I've been very fortunate to be involved in this project with people who are a lot smarter than I am, especially within this area. And it's been a learning experience for me as well. I didn't appreciate some of the non-technical skills early in my career like I do now. And for me, it's only helped make me a better clinician, a better educator, and hopefully a better supporter of others that want to engage in these exercises. It's interesting that we call it non-technical skills, but then when you talk about communication, to me at least, the communication is probably the last step of the entire cascade of events that occurred in the operating room because you sit behind that bypass circuit and to the untrained eye at times, it doesn't look like there's very much physical movement, but it would be so fascinating to track the amount of different points of data that a perfusionist is analyzing and the amount of patterns that they're trying to deduce at any given moment during that case to come to a anticipatory conclusion that results in one word yeah, spoken in a way where the surgeon is receptive. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. That's a great point. And where does the perfusionist spend their focus and their time? I think there'll be technology that we could use even with eye tracking software that helps perfusionists better understand and engineers that make heart-lung machine technology. Where does perfusion focus their time when they're on cardiopulmonary bypass and their attention? I think there are formal communication taxonomies that exist right now. Things like there's an acronym when you're trying to express urgency to someone, it's called CUS, C-U-S. You would say, okay, I'm concerned that my venous reservoir level is low. And if the surgeon doesn't really respond to the way in which you hoped he or she would, then you'd say, okay, the next urgency is I'm uncomfortable that my venous reservoir level is low and my pump flow is low. And if you don't get the action and the response, then it's okay, this is a safety event. I need everybody to stop. I'm not able to flow here. There is formal communication that can help us that exists already. It's just really a matter of trying to incorporate it into our regular part of our conduct of bypass, both technical and non-technical. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to... I never would have thought of communicating it that way. Just <laughs> outed myself. <Yeah. laughs> No, but it's interesting. It's one thing that I saw when I was starting out in the field. I worked at a center that had nine different surgeons. And I quickly learned that the same thing could be communicated four or five different ways, depending on who I was talking to. So for some surgeons, I would have to say, I think the venous cannula is misplaced. Can you help me? Can you wiggle it around? See if I get more drainage. And then with another surgeon, I could simply say, I'm losing volume. And they would go through their own steps at the field. Like they didn't need to be told what to check up at their end. That would already trigger them to check on their end while I checked on my end. So interesting that like exactly what you're saying, those non-technical skills could be very specific to the people that you're talking about too, to get them to action. Yeah. With nine surgeons, I'm surprised you don't have nine different ways that you communicate. (laughs) I did. (laughs) I definitely did. (laughs) Yeah, it would be nice to standardize that process of communication between both parties. But yeah, that would be a dream. (laughs) Listen, it it can be done. It's cliche for us to always compare ourselves to aviation, right? There are similarities, but of course, there's going to be differences. But there is formal communication that exists in other high-risk industries. And I don't think we should be exclusive to that. That should be something that we consider. If we're really data-driven and we know that communication is a major source of the reasons why medical errors take place, why wouldn't we want to invest in that would be what I say. That if we've ever run into those situations in operating room, we all have. We've seen it, right? Sometimes it doesn't result in an adverse event. Sometimes it does, but even the ones that don't, the learning opportunities, right? And so what can we do to improve the process of care that reduces or mitigates some of those risks for error? And if we know communication is a part of it, you said yourself, you sit behind a heart-lung machine, that's a natural barrier to start, right? Because surgeons facing the other way, they're not facing us. We're behind the heart-lung machine, so there's a barrier there. There's a lot of extraneous noise, especially if they're listening to music. And so how effectively do we think we always communicate? Sometimes the circulating nurse is taking a call for another patient, the unit, and the surgeon needs to take care of that. Anesthesia has a group of people back behind where they are communicating, and there's a lot of extraneous noise. And so it's not that hard to believe that sometimes there are lapses that take place because we're a little bit more informal with the way in which we communicate because maybe it's Part of it's because we're comfortable with one another, but still needs, it still can happen. 
I'm excited to see this simulation occur at AMSEC this year. I can't wait to be an expert assessor and start running around (laughs) (laughs) waving the rubric. Communicating, what's better with you? Um, And it's not too late. It's not too late for people to sign up for that session either. So we still have seats for that session. And this is on the pre-conference day on Thursday, the 23rd. So it's not too late for people to sign up. And I think we're looking forward to a fun day together. And you have manufacturers contributing we devices. Do. So talk a little bit about yeah. that because it's you're not just going to sit in a room and like chit chat back and forth staring at somebody. It's set up pretty well. No, half of our time will be spent actually with hands-on experiences with the pump and simulation. And so very fortunate that we have both Medtronic and uh, Spectrum Medical and Biomed Simulation supporting the session. So we'll have the quantum pump, we'll have the Nautilus ECMO system, we'll have the Califia simulators, and we got all the cool tools. Now it's just designing There's around how we interact with those tools and the people in the room and identify things that we can do to sort of improve together. Very cool. I'm so excited. I'll be prepared to fight somebody if I don't get a seat. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to to fight anyone, Tiff. Okay. Your workout videos. I don't think anybody (laughs) wants to tussle with you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I forget how strong I am sometimes. (laughs) Can you share any advice for perfusion students or trainees just starting out in their careers in relation to pints or non-technical skills? If you were going to send them off into war... What would you tell them? I don't know if this really relates to non-technical skills, but I think that first year coming out of school with a new job and studying for your boards and for many, for many graduates, they're going to live somewhere they may have never lived before. I think that's such an exciting time of their lives. It was for when I came out of perfusion school and that's where I was going to wind up landing and in the type of environment that I worked in. And so that, that first year is so busy, but yet so rewarding because you are establishing relation, professional relationships. I know I might've had professional jobs before perfusion school, but for some graduates, they don't. This is really like their first career minded position outside of school and being able to establish relationships with your colleague, being able to start your career. And the first few months, of course, you're studying for the boards, but then after that, you have to identify, okay, this profession is going to be very good to me over the course of my career. It's rewarding in what we provide patients. It's also very rewarding in terms of compensation and salary. What can I do to give back? And this is where perfusion students can start to identify where some of their may be in our profession, whether it's volunteering, like we all do, or contributing to the department and helping develop their policies and procedures or volunteering for organizations. There's lots of opportunities, but after that first few months, things start to slow a little bit. Once you catch your breath and you realize that hey, now I have some time to try to make a difference. I'm so excited when I see students graduate and they walk through and I meet their families and they're so excited about starting their careers that it's one of the most rewarding moments every year that I have. And the two times of the year I'm most excited is the day I meet them during their interview and the day that they graduate. We look forward to that every year. With regard to non-technical skills, probably I don't think I'd have any strong recommendations their first year. 
other than to establish professionally in the operating room and still stick to what you were trained and not to feel in any way that uh, feel the need to be complacent, that uh, there's always opportunities to continually make things better and change, make ourselves better as we mature and evolve. And so there's a lot of exciting opportunities for students or for graduates rather. I think that's great advice. Yeah, your passion for this profession is definitely seen and felt and very admirable. I'm definitely inspired. I'm going to get off this podcast and just do a little dance or I don't know something, but I I love work. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I don't start work until Monday, so we're good. (laughs) I'll do something fun. Then this weekend, you can work on your decision making and uh, your situational awareness then. Yes, exactly. See, I have homework. I have homework. I am going to jump off the rails for a second with this question, though. Uh, You may already be familiar with the wearable eye tracking glasses by a company called Toby that is revolutionizing attention computing for over 20 years now. In recent years, the German Heart Center in Berlin performed a study using these eye tracking glasses to evaluate the cognitive processes and instinctive behaviors of novice and expert perfusionists. So given your expertise on pints, do you think that these classes can be used in simulation to improve pints by providing feedback on situational awareness and decision-making skills? I do. I think what they're doing in Europe with that technology is really fascinating. I did read that article. And in fact, A little of that work was actually done at MUSC. This is before my time. Dr. Joe Sestino was doing a little bit of that work. And I think he had a GoPro. So it wasn't the eyeglasses. Back then it was the old GoPros. So he had a GoPro and he was putting it on students. I don't know if that work was ever published. I don't think it was. But he did some of that work. And I think a group of students did a student project, I'm pretty sure. But they were able to at least see where perfusionists spend their time and focus. Was it on the reservoir? Was it on the monitor? In this day and age, a lot of operating rooms have overlight cameras. You can follow and track the surgery. I think that's fantastic because when I went to perfusion school, where we knew where the surgeon was in the procedure was based on how he or she was standing. So if they're if they were suturing with their hands with their arms fairly tucked in, that might've meant that they were doing their their proximal, their distals. And then if they were further out, it might've been their proximals and always had to wrap our heads and reach around to see what they were doing. But now with some of the technology in an operating room, you can see everything and that helps with some of your situational awareness, right? But I love that technology and would love to incorporate it in simulation and just over time be able to trend based on how confident and confident that learners are, where there are changes in terms of where they spend their concentration and focus on what aspects of the pump. I've heard those glasses are pretty expensive. It could possibly be a pretty hefty grant. Yeah, I might need to have a bake sale or something in front of the college. Yeah, yeah lemonade, stand, Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> going to say we're going to we're slowly approaching a future where the students at MUSC are going to show up to simulation with a VO2 mask, a GoPro, a heart rate monitor. Yeah. And suddenly you're going to watch like the EKG spikes when like a when a crisis <laughs> I had and a classmate. We'll have all that we'll have all that data back at the university so we yeah. know 
we know when they're when they're anxious or they're about to pass out. I see a future paper published but, the odds risk of a perfusionist needing coronary revascularization depending on where they work or yeah what, yeah heart rate variations yeah yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah I had a classmate that in his first month or two of working sent a group chat message to the rest of the class after we graduated and was like my heart rate hit 120 beats per minute yesterday. My Apple Watch thought I was working out. I was just putting somebody on ECMO. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that might be a workout, depending yeah. on how quickly yeah. you're putting them on ECMO. Yeah, I think it was like an ECPR case. So yeah. It's like, it's yeah. A bit of an emergency, but yeah. yeah, it's real. Who needs a gym? That's right. <laughs> That's true. Just be a perfusionist. <laughs> just ECMO cannulas and you'll get your workout in. Yeah. <laughs> Too true. (laughs) Pushing that cart. It's quite the workout. It's full body. You don't need a kettlebell. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I'll keep that in mind for my next. (laughs) Maybe we can watch some of those Instagrams of you pushing an ECMO cart like up one of those mountains. (laughs) It can go viral, I think. (laughs) Yeah. When you have your hospital has a ramp connector. You're going uphill with those patients. This is true. Yeah, the center I worked at was in New York City was designed by a famed architect. And there were two towers that connected. But floor six in one building was floor seven in the other building. And when you went across the bridges that connected them, it was on an incline. So you were either transporting a patient going downhill or going uphill. It's quite a workout. Yeah, that downhill one's probably a little easier. You just put your feet up and you stand on the ECMO pump and you roll down together. <laughs> we put That's the fellow at the foot of the bed as a human break. That's oh, right. God. So if you run them over, they don't cost you as much. Yeah, exactly. Workers comp, I don't know. <laughs> give, give them a nice little vacation. But yeah, Dave, thank you so much for, for coming into this episode. We were so excited to have you. This was such a great oh, conversation. Pleasure. Enjoyed this. This was fun. You totally breathed life into this podcast. And we really appreciate you kickstarting our first episode on Pump. So we've enjoyed picking your brain and learning the inside scoop on pints. And we're so excited to share your expertise with our listeners as an investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. And look forward to some of your podcasts and I'll be a big (laughs) listener. That's a wrap for this episode. Your source for all things perfusion. Thank you for tuning in and taking the time to learn with us. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.